Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Monday, the 9th of August, and on today's briefing, a really powerful interview with the youngest son of one of Australia's most famous and fractured football families. Because of the success my father had with football, people would stop us on the street and want to talk to him about his career, and then they would look down at me as well and, and you know, ask if I played rugby league, and I'd kind of nod my head, and, and they'd pat me on the head and say, you know, you end up half as good as your old man, and, and you'll be a good player. So that's Brandon Jack. He's a former Sydney Swan player. His brother was also a very successful Swans player and his dad was the rugby league immortal Gary Jack. Now Brandon hasn't spoken to his dad Gary in seven years. Now he's released a book telling the whole raw story and it's about a lot more than football and family. It's really about not fitting into the life that you're born into which lots of us can relate to. So that's our interview in the briefing a little later. First Annika is here as we bring you the news of the day. The Olympic Games have wound up in Tokyo with a closing ceremony at the city's main stadium. Sailing gold medalist Matthew Belcher was the Aussie flag bearer, leading our contingent of athletes who stayed behind for the closing ceremony. Uh, It's such a shame that it's over. It's been an incredible two weeks. As the closing ceremony was happening in Tokyo, there was a ceremony in Paris marking the official handover of the Olympic flag because they'll be hosting the next Olympics, I guess here's the upside, in three years rather than four years. Yeah, it'll come around a little bit sooner this time, Tom. Australia continued to rake in medals right across the weekend too. We had Nicola McDermott winning silver in the women's high jump, setting a national record of 2.02 metres in the Olympic final. Yeah, and it was Australia's third podium finish in the track and field with Kelsey Lee Roberts winning bronze in the women's javelin and Ashley Maloney in the men's decathlon. And Australia's men's basketball team had its first podium finish on Saturday night, beating Slovenia 100 to 93 in that bronze medal game. Yeah, I watched that. That was so awesome. Slovenia were coming back. They got to within three points and then we closed them out. Paddy Mills scoring 42 points single-handedly. It was an incredible effort and there was so much love from the basketball community because we've been wanting a medal at the Olympics for decades and it finally came. Australia ended up sixth in the overall tally, which is amazing considering our population. 17 gold, which matched our Athens result in 2004, but we got a bit more silver that year, so our total was four medals higher in 2004, so almost our best Olympics ever. And on the COVID front, Japan has been reporting between 14,000 and 15,000 new cases of COVID per day. Just before the Games, they were closer to between three and 4,000 cases per day. So they've roughly tripled over the past few weeks, by far the biggest wave of the pandemic. Yeah, but the Prime Minister, Yoshihide Suga, has said that there's no direct link between the Games and the surging cases. Australia's first ever drive-through vaccination site will open to the public in Melbourne today. The site at a former Bunnings in Melbourne's outer northwest will start administering Pfizer jabs to people aged between 40 and 59 and younger priority workers who've made a booking. It comes after Victorian authorities yesterday announced AstraZeneca will be available to adults under 40, with Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton encouraging people in their 20s to get it. I'm a 52-year-old bloke. If I were 25 and AstraZeneca was the only vaccine available to me today, I would get it. Victoria announced 11 new local cases, all linked to known cases, but not in isolation for the infectious period.
So, Annika, how do you see the outbreak playing out in Victoria oh, this week? It was a bit of a roller coaster time. We had mm. 29 cases one day of the weekend and then they dropped down to 11. So I do think it'll have to go a little bit longer. I thought the government down here, given their past track record, actually popped out of the last lockdown a little bit quicker than they usually would. I don't think that'll be the case this time now. But it does seem like we're going to have rolling lockdowns for a little bit, especially if we keep chasing zero as what we're after. And what's the sentiment like in Melbourne? Because it's been such a funny journey, particularly when you compare Sydney and Melbourne. A lot of people are really frustrated with the way things have played out in Sydney, whereas Melbourne looked to have things under control. But to be going in and out of lockdown so fast, I imagine that feels like it's almost not worth it for some people. Yeah, that's certainly how I felt. It felt like what was the point of coming out for a week or two weeks that we did? Um, we couldn't have home visits during that time, so we still had heavy restrictions. It's just felt like one continuous lockdown, really. And I think it just, if you look forward to things in the future over the next few months, you just know that should one or two cases pop up, this always might be the result. I've had a holiday cancelled. Lots of people I know have had things cancelled in the upcoming weeks. So I think that really rattles confidence, especially for small businesses. It's a really terrible situation. Well, Cairns and surrounding areas in northern Queensland have gone into a snap three-day lockdown just as the COVID restrictions were lifted in the southeast of the state. State health authorities say a local taxi driver was infectious in the community for about 10 days. And fellow local cabbie Robin Heath told the ABC it's a really concerning situation. Situation is terrifying to many of us, older members who drive taxis, a taxi driver has infected God knows how many people. So that lockdown in Cairns came just as businesses and schools reopened in Brisbane and the state's southeast after that lockdown was lifted. Restrictions still in place, though. Residents still have to wear masks in most public spaces. In New South Wales, meanwhile, they recorded 262 new infections on Sunday and, unfortunately, another death. And the first jabs of the Moderna vaccine are expected to be available to Australians by next month, with the government banking on the approval coming within a few weeks. We're likely to receive um, approval from the TGA, but it is in their hands uh, within the next two weeks. Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt speaking there. The government says once it's approved by the Therapeutic Goods Administration, one million doses of Moderna will arrive in Australia in September. So like Pfizer, it's an mRNA vaccine, so it requires two shots, 28 days apart. Australia's bought 25 million doses of the Moderna vaccine, with 10 million to be used in primary vaccinations this year and 15 million to be used as booster shots. All right, Annika, we'll catch you tomorrow. Jan jumping in for our interview with Brandon Jack. just heard there is the sound of Brandon Jack kicking his first goal for the Swans in 2013. He played for them for five years, but only 28 games at the top level. And 28 is the name of his memoir. Yeah, Brandon Jack's the son of one of Australia's most famous rugby league heroes, Gary Jack. He was massive in the 80s and 90s. And Brandon's the youngest of three boys. So his life was always going to involve football, even if it didn't really fit. Yeah, he grew up with this heavy load of expectation, not just because of his dad, but his eldest brother, Kieran, was a very successful player, running on for 10 seasons with the Sydney Swans. His book also tells a graphic story of how football and family 
fell apart for him and how accepting yourself even when life doesn't go to plan. Brandon, thanks for coming on The Briefing. What were the strangest parts of growing up in the family of a rugby league legend? I start the book, I guess, with a description of my house and the first thing you'd see when you walked in was a, a framed Australian rugby league jersey and that was normal for me, you know. That was, I thought everyone's dad played for Australia as well, but mm-hmm. but I also knew that, that we were quite special in a way and I knew that because of the success my father had with football, people would stop us on the street and want to talk to him about his career and then they would look down at me as well and, and you know, ask if I played rugby league and I'd kind of nod my head and, and they'd pat me on the head and say, you know, you end up half as good as your old man and, and you'll be a good player. I just had a childhood that was kind of immersed in experiences like that. So there were three boys. I mean, things would have panned out very differently if your parents had girls, but when you've got a, a rugby league great with three sons, those questions are going to emerge. How did those expectations and that reality evolve as you got into your teenage years? Yeah, exactly right. Three boys all thinking they can be the Australian fullback. It's uh, It actually can't happen, but but that's how we were. And, you know, we, we loved playing footy with each other in the backyard and I was the youngest, so I think they always took it a bit easier on me, but, but that was how we spent our time together. Part of, you know, writing my journey out has been really reflecting on internal and external pressure and kind of the the blurred line that exists between those two things that have been really prominent in my life. And at times, you know, I stopped wanting to play football. I really wanted to walk away. But inside me was this kind of inner drive and inability to walk away from it. And reflecting on that was a, a really powerful thing for me to do. Brandon, when did you start to feel that the expectations that had been put on you didn't quite fit? I think, you know, probably around... 12 years old, 12 to 13 was when I first started not looking forward to going to training anymore, not looking forward to playing on weekends and, and tried to get out of playing. And then when that was happening, I, you know, I was aware that football wasn't something I enjoyed, didn't enjoy as much as I thought I should. You know, now looking back, those are the moments when it was was clear that this expectation was really, really pulling me in a place that I didn't want to go. And then probably the rest of my teenage years were similar as well. I changed and started playing Australian rules football when I was 14 and had a brief respite there. But still, when it started getting towards the professional end and, you know, that you have to get to the professional grade for it to be worthwhile, I really didn't want to do it. But, you know, I ended up doing it and spent five years in a professional environment. Yeah. So what was that like? You had this idea in your head that it wasn't quite the right fit, but you were clearly physically gifted. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been able to do it, especially given that your heart wasn't 100% in it. So how did you even get to that level with that hesitation in your brain? I was fortunate that, you know, when clubs looked at me, especially from the AFL, I think they they saw that I was Kieran's younger brother. And Kieran ended up being captain of the Sydney Swans. And when I was coming through, he was a really successful player. And he was very raw at the same age as me. So it's a big thing in in footy to kind of look at somebody's bloodlines and, and to see the talent around them and what they could end up as. No doubt that happened with me, but, you know, I did have a a certain degree of talent with it that that made me stand out. I'm not going to describe this as a football memoir because it's about so much more. You talk about what it was like playing drugs, booze, fighting. There's an encounter with sex workers that you write about very candidly. You talk about how obnoxious you became. How Mm. bad did it get once you had the money and the attention? It's a full... I mean, I only played professionally for five years, but I feel like I did kind of have the full experience in that time. So, you know, after my my first year, I probably exceeded a lot of expectations that people had of me. And 
all of a sudden, you know, people are stopping me and telling me how good a player they think I am. Friends I went to school with are only wanting to talk to me about football. And, you know, the club's really pumping me up as well. And at the end of my first year, I, I did definitely get swept up in it. And I started to get ahead of myself and think that, you know, the world revolved around me because, you know, the world revolved around football and I was a good footballer. That was one part of it. But then the downside of that as well, you know, the fall that came after really did rock me as well. And because I had made football so central to my life experience, I then started divulging in, in drinking and drugs and um, a lot of things that, that were used to mask the pain uh, in a really unhealthy way. The other big thread that sort of plays out in your book as well is your family story. Mm. It's sort of one of the most kind of heart-wrenching parts because there's a real breakdown between the relationship that you have with yourself and your family and your parents and your brothers. What happened during that time? What was going on in your family life at the same time that you were on the field? The book, so much is about love and searching for love. And, you know, I, I didn't ever want to really write about my family. And, and there's events that have transpired that I don't think there's any, you know, there's no need to go into the, the nitpicking because that becomes an issue of right and wrong. And there's no right and wrong in this situation. It's caused a lot of pain to a lot of people. And, and this was me asking myself what love is. And, and to do that, I had to look at my family because that was my first source of love. And, you know, I did grow up in an environment where there was a certain kind of love and then the dynamic changed. And, and where I am now, I, I haven't really had a healthy relationship with my parents for seven or eight years now. And it's taken a toll on me as it has on them. Part of life is that, you know, it is messy and it doesn't always make sense. And the fact that I wrote it now when I'm kind of in the midst of that mm. uncertainty with that relationship still and there isn't a final ending, and it doesn't necessarily resolve itself, that's life, you know. Mm. If I waited 20 years when things were neat and packaged, if they do get neat and packaged, it's a different story. And, and to capture it now in the mess that it is, in what I hope is a nuanced way that, that isn't trying to blame anyone and just paint a picture, there's power in that, I think. That's a really interesting point and probably one of the most relatable themes of the whole book, you know, not everyone's played professional football, so that stuff's right out of a lot of people's daily experience. But this tension with your family is is right up the block hole for a lot of people, I imagine. And having to make that decision of what's most healthy for you, because ideally we all want to get on well with our families, but mm. for some people that isn't the most healthy way for them to move forward with their lives. No one wants to be part of a fractured family, you know. It, it's an awful thing. And unfortunately, you know, mine did kind of play out in the media a bit. So the question does follow me and, and people are aware of it anyway. So I live with that kind of knowledge that if it comes up in a conversation, how am I going to handle it? Whether it's a family relationship or romantic relationship with love, we all kind of have our different ideas of what love is. And sometimes those two ideas don't line up. And that's why a lot of people have described it as raw. And that's because it is. I'm, I'm literally figuring it out as I'm doing it. What do you think has driven such a massive wedge in your family? For people that don't know, you, you haven't spoken to your parents in seven years. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's just a lack of understanding. And, and to pinpoint one event or two events, it's, it's really too hard to say. There's a real tension there between wanting to belong to something and then wanting to be an individual. And if this can help even people who are in really healthy family relationships to be so grateful for what they have and to yeah. be like far out, we're not perfect, but we, we still have got so much of it right, then that's something I really hope can happen too. Brandon, you talk a lot about identity in the book and for a long time your identity was linked to you playing football. 
you don't do that anymore. Who are you mm. without football? Have you found a source of identity outside of that now? A funny way of explaining this is, so I, I do a lot of writing now, and whenever I write articles for for publications, they, they always want to include, like, former footballer in my bylines, and I, <laughs> I fight with so many editors about that. You know, you should see my email chains. I'm like, no, I don't want to be seen as that. Mm. <laughs> for a long time, that was how I was, and, you know, now I'm grateful that I can say, like, yeah, I was, I was a footballer. I did do that because even though I didn't succeed how I, you know, probably thought I should have or wanted to, I can still take pride in that that's what I was for a point in time and now I guess I am pursuing you know more I guess artistic endeavors writing music art but I'm always wary of labeling myself as well and, and confining myself to pigeonholes in a way because I've done that before and it's not a healthy thing to do so where to from here what do you hope to do with your life good question <laughs> really good question see I'm probably better now at not looking too far ahead which is good but Writing the book was, for all the for the toll it took on me and how difficult it was at times, that process of, of setting out and working towards something with words was something that I've never experienced, a level of gratification like that. So I would love to keep writing. I'm constantly working on new ideas, and I'd like to explore writing in, in different areas as well, like for, for TV, for the film screen. Brandon, that's an interesting point. So you, you said you were sort of uncomfortable with, you know, being branded as a writer who's an ex-footballer, but... It kind of makes you an expert in masculinity, which is a big topic up for debate in society right now. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I, I am still learning how to define this whole masculinity thing. And, you know, I was asked in an interview yesterday on a Melbourne footy station, and they're like, what can you tell a couple of old blokes about masculinity? <laughs> and I think when that word comes up, it immediately kind of makes a lot of people cringe and there's so many connotations around it. So I think they know their audience mm. would hear that word and just like throw it off to the side and go, oh, look mm. at this young like art student. To me, that's bullshit, you know. I'm like, what could they tell me about masculinity? If we sat down and had a beer at a pub and a couple of old footy players started talking to me, they're not going to use the word masculinity, but the stories they tell are going to be about masculinity. Mm. I don't use the word masculinity at all in the book. And that was a conscious choice by me because I didn't want to come across like I was, you know, new at all or that I was mm. defining this thing. My story is so affected by male culture or by the expectations of me because I was born a male. When it comes to masculinity, I don't have a definition for it or I don't know if I'm expert on it, but I know that it's played a role in my story. That's Brandon Jack, and you can get his memoir. It's called 28, and it's a really good read, isn't it, Jan? Yeah, and you know what? You don't even have to be into football to enjoy it because it is about so much more than that. Yeah, the family stuff and finding yourself in and amongst and separate to the expectations that are put on you, I think is something all of us can relate to. Absolutely. Listener.